As Stephen mentioned uh, at the beginning of our service, we witnessed a horrific tragedy uh, this past week with the loss of uh, 59 lives and over 500 injured. It's hard to watch TV this week and really comprehend it all. In fact, the only good news that I've been watching are the stories this past week of all the first responders, all the heroes that stepped up and saved so many lives. The pure evil of one man has in many ways at least partially eclipsed, has been partially eclipsed by the goodness of so many, hundreds, even thousands of people again that stepped forward to save so many. They say the death toll would have been far worse had it not been for hundreds of people who volunteered and stepped forward to give blood. In fact, they had more blood than they needed this past week. What would they have done without it? Well, transport helicopters and ambulances have what they call uh, polyheme, which is a synthetic substitute. It's also called fake blood. The problem is that while uh, polyheme can save uh, the lives of trauma patients on their way to the hospital, it's only temporary. Unless it is quickly replaced by real blood, the victim will die. Leviticus 17.11 tells us, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. You know, when it comes to the blood of Christ, there is no substitute. <laughs> His blood was shed on a cross to give permanent and eternal life to each and every one of us, all of us victims of the pure evil that exists in this world. And without His precious blood applied to our lives, we will eternally die. Why is that? Hebrews 9.22 tells us all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why? Why is that? We know that sin is a debt. It has to be paid. You know, I used to wonder, why can't God just, uh, just forgive the, the debt of sin without any payment? I mean, just forgive everyone. I mean, if God is a generous God, why wouldn't he just move on without payment? Live and let live. But here's the big problem. Someone always has to eat the cost. Someone always has to eat the cost. For example, if somebody uh, drives their car and, and, and plows into your fence, you might say, hey, don't worry about it. Uh, no worries. Uh, it's all forgiven. But forgiving your neighbor does not do away with the bill. It doesn't dissolve the damage. You will have to eat the cost. Somebody always has to eat the cost. Well, at the cross, God was personally eating the cost for each and every one of us. Why can't God just forgive the debt? That's exactly what he did at the cross. He justly forgave the debt and personally paid the price. About 10 years ago, we experienced a financial crisis, 2008, 2009, and it basically was an economic meltdown. Many people in our church lost their homes. Many of you may have lost your jobs. Many of you may have lost... Uh, Maybe your retirement savings. The White House gave Wall Street a bailout. They call it the most expensive bailout in all of human history. But in reality, it wasn't. The greatest and most expensive bailout in human history was when God the Son uh, was established as kind of like the new CEO of a corrupt organization called Humanity Incorporated. And together by the power of their spirit, the, they took upon themselves the most outrageous forgiveness plan in all of human history, in all the world. So when did that seed of this redemption plan first come about? When did God first set in motion the bailout plan? It all started back here in Exodus. 
It started with what we call the Passover. You're familiar with the story. The people of Israel had spent 400 years as slaves in, in Egypt. God heard their cry. He raised up a man by the name of Moses to deliver them out of bondage into the promised land. Pharaoh, of course, had hardened his heart, would not let them go, and so God decided to try to help change his mind with about 10 plagues. Pharaoh still was hardened and didn't uh, let them go, and even after these horrible plagues had basically devastated his entire country. But there was one last and final, the worst, plague of all. God has sent his angel of death across the land of Egypt to take out the firstborn of every single household in the land. But every Jewish family was given very specific, very simple instructions. You take a lamb, you take its blood, and you apply it, you paint it on the doorposts of your house. And when that happens, when the angel of death comes to take out your firstborn, he'll see that blood applied to the doorpost and pass over, pass over your house. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, God kind of spells it out here. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. And so from, from that day on, Passover really becomes the greatest, the, the, really the biggest of all the Jewish feasts, and they had a lot of them. This was the big one. It was the major annual celebration of how God delivered them out of the land and brought them into the promised land. Today, we Americans, we... Uh, we have our Independence Day. I think we've been celebrating now about 240 years of freedom out from under the rule of Britain. But instead of parties, instead of fireworks, the Passover was celebrated with sacrifice and with worship. But even after 2,000 years of animal sacrifice, the Passover was not capable of producing what the blood of Christ did on the cross as the Lamb of God who alone took away the sins of the world. You see, the blood of animal sacrifices was temporary, like polyhene. It only covered up their sin for a little while. In fact, the word atonement means to cover. It doesn't mean to take away. It's covering it temporarily for a while. It cannot save you. Unless it is replaced by real blood, the victim will die. The blood of Christ shed on the cross is a permanent solution, once and for all, giving eternal life to each and every one of us. Again, all victims of the pure evil that is in this world. You know, as we journey together through the Old Testament, we discover how Jesus Christ really is uh, revealed in some way on every single page of the Bible. I'm hoping you're keeping up with your reading to read through God's Word this year as we journey together from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Every page of God's Word and re reveals in some way the, the life, the, 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 the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. You'll see it all through revealed in the pages of Scripture. And what we discover here in the book of Exodus are three major things that we really need to know about Christ, basically in order to be saved by Him. You see, what we find here in the book of Exodus is the identity of Christ, the claim of Christ, and the work of Christ. Real quickly, what is the identity of Christ Christ? 
seen? How is that seen in the book of Exodus? Well, first of all, it's interesting that in the Old Testament, we have so many examples of what are called theophanies. What's a theophany? Theos, God, uh, uh, phony, uh, a form. And, and basically, a, a theophany is where God shows up in some kind of a natural form. It might be a burning bush, a cloud, fire, wind, uh, even Jesus walking on the water is a theophany. God showing up in some kind of a natural form. And it's always a defining moment in the life of the person who experiences God as a theophany. Uh, God shows up to either test that person or to basically communicate some important truth that that person needs to know. For example, God once put Moses in the cleft of the rock so that Moses could see God while my glory passes by, God said, and the Lord passed before him. God told Elijah up on the mountain he, uh, to stand there, and, and the Lord is about to pass by, and he saw God as a theophany in a natural form. In both cases, God appears in order to give them a better view of himself, up close and personal. <laughs> God does that. Time after time after time, God shows up in some kind of a natural form in the Old Testament as a defining moment. Again, to test the person and also to communicate some important truth. There's a typical pattern. Again, whether it's a burning bush or a cloud or wind or fire, in every situation, the person is absolutely terrified. They're, they're, they're terrified. But every time, in the midst of their fear, when they step out and they embrace what God has called them to do, God reveals himself, blesses them, and anoints them in his presence in a powerful and miraculous way every time. That's what God does, especially in the storms that we go through. He meets us in a powerful way uh, and, and meets us at that greatest point of need. Let me give you an example in my own life. About 10 years ago, we were going through a major storm with one of our sons. He was 22 years of age at the time. He was living up in Eugene, Oregon, and he was struggling with chronic anxiety and deep, deep depression. Late one night, I sensed that God was telling me, in fact, I heard God speak to my heart, call your son. It wasn't an audible voice, but it was crystal clear. I hesitated because it was kind of late. It was about 10 or 11 o'clock at night, but God spoke to my heart. Brad, call your son. So I picked up the phone, and I picked up my cell. I gave him a call. He picked it up, and immediately said, Dad, why are you calling me now? And he started sobbing and crying on the phone. I said, what's wrong? He said, why are you calling me now? And uh, I, I said, what, what's going on? What's wrong? Talk to me. He said, it's dark, it's raining, and I'm walking. And he said, Dad, I'm having a really hard time. And I heard a train horn in the distance coming my direction. I'm walking toward the tracks. And then the cell phone rings. Why are you calling me now? And uh, I just told him, God told me to call you. What's going on? Talk to me. And I talked to him for the next hour, prayed with him, basically helped him you know, off a bridge, or in this case, off the tracks. God shows up oftentimes in powerful ways, in personal ways, in the midst of the storms that we face. God does that. It's interesting that all through the, out, out the Old Testament, there's a specific angel. There's a lot of angels mentioned in the Bible, but there's one particular angel that has a name, well, actually, he's referred to as the angel of the Lord. What makes this angel different? What makes this angel, angel of the Lord, unique?
from all the other angels. Well, in Genesis chapter 16 and in Judges 13, the, the angel of the Lord is referred to and actually worshipped as deity. It's a different kind of angel. When Moses approached the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, it tells us that the angel of the Lord is who spoke to him from that burning bush. And when Moses approached that burning bush and he asked the angel of the Lord who was talking to him, uh, who are you? The angel of the Lord responded, I am. That's the proper name of God. I am. That's his name. What's interesting is that 1,500 years later, during his earthly ministry, Jesus Christ called himself by that very first name that the angel of the Lord had claimed. Jesus said, I am. That's the proper name for God. And so my, most Bible scholars agree that the person in the Old Testament referred to as the angel of the Lord is actually the pre-incarnate Christ. Came on the scene 1,500 years before he was ever born in that manger in Bethlehem. Centuries before. It's interesting, the first time he appears in the Old Testament is when he appears to, to Hagar in the desert. Hagar was the handmaiden of Sarai. And there, Christ basically, for her, is a source of encouragement. Christ there in the desert with her is a, is a source of provision. The next time you see uh, the angel of the Lord coming on the scene, it, it's, it's stopping Abraham from about ready to sacrifice his own son. And there Christ is, is for him a source of blessing, a, a source of promise. He's the one who appears in front of Balaam. He stops the donkey dead in his tracks. And there Christ is for him a source of warning, a source of direction. Christ himself is the angel of the Lord. And when he appears personally, he appears to, to many. In fact, Joshua, Gideon, Manoah and his wife, David, Elijah, Daniel, Joseph, and to countless other men and women throughout the pages of Scripture, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, appears to them. And he appears personally to you and I, in and through the presence, the abiding, indwelling presence of God's very Holy Spirit in you, if you're a child of God this morning. Christ himself is a source of encouragement to us, provision, Blessing, promise, warning, direction. He's there. He meets us at our greatest need. We love and serve the God who appears to us personally. As the psalmist points out in Psalm 34, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Praise the Lord for that. And so we see in the, in the book of Exodus the identity of Christ. He is the angel of the Lord. We also see in Exodus the claim of Christ. What did he claim? Well, one day Jesus is teaching. He's preaching in the streets of Jerusalem. Hundreds are believing his message. Hundreds are following him. And the arrogant Jewish leaders are ticked. They're angry. They're fired up. They hate him. He's a threat to them. And they want him dead. In their arrogance, they challenge him. In John chapter 8, verse 52, the Jews said to Jesus, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? In other words, who do you think you are? <laughs> they make a smug insinuation in verse 19 when they ask Jesus, uh, where is your father? They had heard, they remember, Mary being pregnant before she was married. And they add an ugly innuendo in verse 41. We were not born of fornication. Implied, you were. 
They were basically slandering him. Hey, we know who our daddy is. Who's yours? That's what they were saying. Then they get really arrogant. They slander him some more. In verse 41, we have one father. (laughs) One God. In verse 54, Jesus basically turns up the heat. He mixes it up with these guys. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And I say that I do not, if I do say that I do not know him, I shall be called a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Fighting words. I want you to notice he makes some, several outrageous claims here. God glorifies me, he said. I know God. You are liars. You don't know God. I keep his word. Again, those are fighting words. Jesus is really, again, stirring it up with these guys. And then Jesus keeps coming at them in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. The Jews, therefore, said to him, You are not 50 years old yet, and you have seen Abraham? (laughs) That was 2,000 years ago. Abraham was 2,000 B.C., 1900 B.C., about that. And basically, Jesus is now simply and dramatically saying, I am. And this is the most outrageous claim that Jesus ever said. He said to them, truly I say to you, before Abraham was even born, I am. Wow. When Jesus said that, he was not only claiming to be uh, having precedence over Abraham, he was basically saying, I am God. Very clearly. Remember back in Exodus chapter 3, again, the reluctant Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites. And I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say, what is his name? What shall I tell him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you ought to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. I am who I am. Or I will be who I will be. And that's a real difficult phrase to translate into any language. It's called the Tetragrammaton. (laughs) It's basically four Hebrew letters where we get basically, or how we spell the name Yahweh. It's where we get the name Jehovah, or again, Yahweh. As As a name, it speaks of his existence. I am, meaning I exist. It speaks of eternity. I was, I am, I will be, forever. I am. It speaks of what theologians called, uh, calls uh, a seity, the self-existence of God. He doesn't depend upon anything or anyone. He is God, self-sufficient. I am. A highly unusual name. What a name, a name that could never or ever, ever be ascribed or given to any mortal or cre- created being. It's a name that only God can own, and he does. He's referred to as I am. And it came to be understood by the Jewish people as a very holy, a very personal, a very sacred name. They wouldn't even say it out loud. It was too sacred. They wouldn't write it. And so when Jesus looked at the religious leaders dead in the eye, and he said to them, before Abraham was born, I am, he knew exactly what he was doing. It was a calculated, deliberate declaration of himself as God. Not just a God, not just their God, the one true and living God. Jesus. Sometimes critics and skeptics will argue that Jesus never really claimed to be God, that that was something his followers later on kind of ascribed to him or attributed to him. But when you just read through the New Testament, time and time again, he not only claims it, he demonstrates it. He proves that he truly is God. 
But here in verse 58, it's the most direct. On this occasion, he made it crystal clear. He made it as outrageous as you possibly could make it by using the sacred, personal, primal name of God himself. I am. He was, in fact, saying, I am God. That explains why the leaders responded like they did. There was no doubt in their mind as to what Jesus was claiming. They picked up stones to stone him. They wanted him dead. They thought, here's our, here's our, our way to get rid of this guy. Now, that seems kind of extreme. Why would you stone somebody for claiming to be God? Because in the Jewish mindset, this was the, the worst kind of sin. This was blasphemy. This was worse than I, adultery. It was a capital offense. It deserved death. You did not go around claiming to be God and live very long. Jesus stands alone as the, as the only religious, major religious prominent figure in all of history to claim to, that he was God. Muhammad never claimed to be God. Confucius never claimed to be God. Buddha never claimed to be God. Only Jesus. Of all the religious leaders down throughout history, only Jesus claimed to be God. God himself, before Abraham was, I am. It's just as pointed, it's just as provocative today as it was 2,000 years ago. Uh, Jesus claims none, uh, not, not only that he is timeless, but that he is uh, equal with God himself. And so the, to the Pharisees, again, this was utter blasphemy, a sin that carried with it the death penalty. They pick up stones, but Jesus simply walked out of the temple area. He would later submit himself and be killed for making that claim, but not this day. You know, if Jesus is who he claims to be, then his life, death, and resurrection is the most important event in all of history. If Jesus is who he claims to be, then he has a right to rule in our lives. He has a right to rule in our hearts. If Jesus is who he claims to be, he's alive today. He can invade and transform your life today. Why? Because he is God. Brian Wilkerson put it this way, in an age of pluralism, where people want to believe that all religions are the same, in an age of syncretism, where people want to pick and choose what they believe about life from all various religions of the world, in an age of skepticism, where people want to deny the supernatural, we need to know what we believe about Jesus, that he stands alone among all the moral teachers and spiritual guides down throughout human history, and that he claimed none other than to be God in the flesh. Men and women, we need to know that, we need to defend that, we need to live our lives in submission to that. Jesus is Lord. Amen? <laughs> Jesus is Lord. And so we see in the book of Exodus the identity of Christ. He's the angel of the Lord. We see his, his claim that he is truly God, the I am, revealed here in the book of Exodus. And finally, we discover here the work of Christ. Fifteen centuries have passed since that first Passover. Jesus has gathered his disciples together in the upper room for one last Passover meal. And what he does is he introduces his uh, disciples to something entirely new, something with new significance, new meaning. What he does is, he, as, as while they were eating, he suddenly takes the bread and he takes the cup and he ascribes to the bread and to the, and to the cup something totally new. The disciples had never heard this before, certainly at no Passover meal. In Matthew 26, 26, it tells us, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink 
of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus states here that the bread was his body, the wine was his blood, the blood of a brand spanking new covenant. The bread and wine here of the Passover now represents his body about to be broken and his, his blood to be shed once and for all. And it's in keeping with the forgiveness of sin that was promised in the Old Testament. Now it's brought to fruition. In other words, there's a new way to have a right relationship with God, and it's through Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus established his ordinance for his church, the body of Christ, to practice that, to, 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 to remember that as a continual and ongoing practice that the church has been doing for 2,000 years now. And we're going to do it this morning. We're going to remember. It's a part of that, it's a portion of that Passover meal that Christians have been remembering, remembering and partaking in for the last two millennia. Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Why do we do this? Some churches do it every Sunday. Some churches like ours do it once a month. Some churches do it once a year. Some churches don't do it at all. Some consider every time you get together for a meal with anybody, that's a communion. Why do we, why do we practice this? Here's, you know, the, we usually do it the first Sunday of the month. Last Sunday was a little bit different because we had our, uh, our celebration, our 30th anniversary. But this morning we're going to participate in a part of the Passover meal fulfilled in Christ. And we call it communion. It's called the Eucharist. It's called a lot of different things. But why do we do it? There are five main reasons, really quickly, five. And they, the acronym, I like acronyms, G-R-A-C-E. Number one, we, we practice, we participate, we celebrate this to give thanks. When Jesus gathered his disciples together in the upper room, he gave thanks. In the book of Acts, the early church uh, broke the bread with gladness and with generosity in their hearts. And so at, the, at this time, we gather together in the Lord's table, around the Lord's table with grateful praise and adoration for who he is and, and what he's done. And so first and foremost, we do this uh, to give thanks. And secondly, we do this to remember, to remember, to go back. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, the Apostle Paul states it like this. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance is more than just memory. We talked about this last week. To remember. To remember is to go back in time, make that past event come alive in the present so that you can set a chart for your attitudes and actions in the future. It's remembering. It's bringing to life what happened in the past to alter and to chart out a course for the future. Remember the sacrifice of his body broken and his blood shed on the cross. It's a new covenant that God established with his people. It used to be called the Passover. And we partake in that now as, as, a, as sort of an upgrade, if you want to call it that, a, a renewal of that covenant that God has given to us, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, once and for all. It's no longer temporary. Thirdly, we celebrate the Lord's Supper to affirm His presence. The early church simply affirmed, celebrated, and enjoyed the presence of Christ and the breaking of the bread. When we participate in in communion, uh, God's presence is here in a very special way. I'm not going to get into transubstantiation and consubstantiation and all that. I'm just saying that God is here in a very special way when we celebrate, celebrate remember, and give thanks to him by, by partaking of, of the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. God's presence is here this morning 
as we participate in that. And then fourthly, we celebrate the Lord's Supper in community. We're a family. We're gathered around the table, so to speak. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing? A sharing of the blood of Christ. It's not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. We partake in the one bread. Again, we're a family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, united by what Christ has done for us. We're part of the family of God. We're gathered around the table to celebrate. And then finally, we, we remember, we celebrate the Lord's Supper in expectancy of the coming kingdom. Jesus is coming back. And with everything that's happened in this world, he could come back in our lifetime. He could come back tomorrow. I think the world, as, as Stephen mentioned at the beginning, is getting worse and worse and worse. The Lord is coming back. His kingdom is at hand. As Jesus declared, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We celebrate communion. We, as we do that, we anticipate the day when every believer down throughout history Every, every true believer is gathered together around the marriage supper of the Lamb where we celebrate the triumph of what Christ has done on the cross for you and for me. That's why we take, partake of communion. Revelation 19.5 give, give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. Hallelujah! For the Lord your God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice, let's be glad, give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we're gathered this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ because of what you did on a cross. Father, I pray that you would never allow us to take that for granted. Help us to always remember, never to forget, what you have so graciously done on our behalf. A transaction took place. And by our faith and trust in what you have done, you have made us clean. You now count us as, as saints, as, as children, brothers and sisters in Christ. You've made us a body. Foothills is a body, a local expression of the universal church that you have established here in this world. Father, help us to be found faithful. Help us to be people, Lord, that, that uh, share the good news of Jesus Christ, that we are light and that we are the love of Christ radiating out to a, to a, a dark and, and, and increasingly dying world in which we live. Help us to make a difference. Help us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those around us by thought, word, and deed. Father, we're here for such a short period of time. We could be gone tomorrow. Help us to make the most of everything. All of life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Father, may the words of our mouth, may the meditations of our heart always be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and you are our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray and all God's children said, amen. In the next few minutes, we're going to partake in communion. And I would invite you to, to get up wherever you are. There's four stations here to take the cup and the bread and go back to your seat. And, and just may this be a time just between you and the Lord where you uh, are filled with gratitude and praise, where you remember what God has done, and where you just uh, enjoy the, the, the relationship that you have with Him because of the, of the cross, because of what He did on a cross for you personally 2,000 years ago.